Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is uh, Darius Dale here, senior analyst of the Hedgeye Macro team, otherwise known as the fatter, darker half of the Keith McCullough and Darius Dale show. Uh, welcome to the first episode of In the Trenches, uh, where we're actually going to be focusing mostly on investor process rather than prognostication. Um, I'm joined by my friend uh, and, and, and a longtime friend and, and, and very thoughtful investor, Nick Reese from uh, Merck Investments. How you doing, Nick? Great, Darius. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you for, uh, for making it all the way up. Like I said, so, you know, what we really want to focus this show on and these segments on is really just, you know, something that I find that, that really makes me tick and, and, and gets me out of bed in the morning is really just process, you know, how to, how to build and execute and, 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 and iterate and evolve your process to make yourself, you know, more resilient, make your returns more robust, and obviously ultimately sort of deliver better solutions for, for your clients or, or your own, your own PA. Um, obviously, a lot of investors watching this trade their own their own assets. So, uh, so again, thank you guys for joining us. And uh, towards the end of the segment, we're going to have a, a live Q and A session as well. So be sure to pop as many of those into the chat stream and try to get to as many as we can before the uh, before the hour's over. So let's just start with uh, let's start with you. Let's um, so you know you obviously are a portfolio manager at Merck Investments. You know what does that mean? Who right. is Merck Investments? Who are your clients? Right. Yeah. So I'm an analyst and, and portfolio manager mm-hmm. at, at Merck Investments, which is a, a money management company based in San Francisco. Always had a strong focus on the the company's always had a strong focus on global macro, mm-hmm. and uh, started by Axel Merck originally running a separately managed accounts business, and then launched some U.S. based mutual funds, uh, which we still run, and then have recently uh, restarted a, an SMA business. I focus on the private wealth management side of that, and a lot of what uh, a lot of the input on my uh, investment decisions comes from the research work that I that I publish and that and that you see on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fantastic research uh, for those of you guys who haven't seen it. So Nick, uh, what I, I think Nick does some of the best long term cycle work that I see certainly on a regular basis. You know, I don't necessarily see much sell side research or have much use for it. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we're buddies, so we see each other's research. And, yeah. and again, you're all about pulling the charts back. You're all about sequencing the data. Yeah. You're all about sort of where are you now? What's the most likely outcome from, from there, and I, and I find that to be quite refreshing, because I, I think, you know, so, so much of what I think people think macro investing is, or macro risk management is, it's just jumping from headline to headline. Um, you know, right. you wake up in the morning, and whatever Bloomberg tells you is the headline of the day, that's what you're going to go down a rabbit hole chasing, right. um, looking for incremental data points on, and I, and I think um, guys like you, guys like me, um, we're actually quite the opposite. You know, we're jumping from time series to time series. Okay, what, where are we in this time series? What's the probable range? What's the most likely sort of spot in time and, you know, for, to, to anticipate an inflection? And ultimately, what does that mean for markets? So, so walk me through or walk our, our audience through, you know, some of the, the types of analysis you produce and how sure. that sort of uh, feedbacks into your investment decision-making process. Sure. Well, I, I fully agree with you that it's, it's all about the process and the excitement of getting up each morning mm-hmm. and, and looking at the incoming data. Some would call the, it boring, but... <laughs> well, and that's... It, 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 yeah, I think, I think yeah. that's, that's fair. Sometimes it is boring. It's certainly... You know, this morning I got up and there was the NFIB report out. Mm-hmm. You know, tweeted the NFIB uh, business optimism chart. No likes, no, yeah. no, no love. You know, yeah. because uh, there, there's there's other there are other things to focus on. The Powell testimony, yeah. news about the virus. So there's totally. always there are always headlines that are that are drawing our attention away from some of this da- data that is boring, but that is ultimately I think really important to keep an eye on. So 
what I do is I publish a monthly business cycle report and a monthly equity market report, mm -hmm. as well as Fed reports for every every Fed meeting. Yep. And I go through, I think one of the distinguishing factors or features of what I do compared to what I what else I see is that I go through a consistent set of data yeah. each month. And and I put that data through a consistent set of frameworks. Yep. So that there's an intellectual consistency to it. Totally. And it's not about trying to say the narrative is is this or that. It's always going to be some some gray area. It's always going to be a probabilistic way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. So the two key questions that I'm trying to answer, one with the business cycle research work is what's the probability that the U.S. economy is headed into an imminent recession? Oh, I like that. And by recession, what I'm talking about are the official NBER recessions. So the NBER, the official gatekeepers of recession. So when I put these recession bands on my charts, that's, what the, that's where that, that data comes from. Mm -hmm. And it's important to note that the NBER does not announce the month that a recession starts, that that's the beginning of the recession. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That would make life a lot, a lot easier. But, yeah. uh, but you know, I think for the early 2000s recession, it took eight years. In, yeah, it, it took it, eight years for them to, to officially call that 2001 slowdown a recession. It was actually the smallest recession in U.S. history. Yeah, so, so this, these, these recessions aren't announced until well after the fact, both mm -hmm. in terms of the start dates and the end dates. So mm -hmm. having leading indicators is really important, but it's also, I think, worthwhile to have some solid coincident indicators because mm -hmm. you know, if you have an indicator that gives you a really good read of when you are on the front edge of what's going to be an official recession, that's still, that's still valuable information. Totally. Uh, so that's on the business cycle front, and then on the equity market front, it's really where are we in this in, in this bull market? How much stamina is there left? Basically, it's the question of you know here we are again at new all time highs today on the S and P five hundred, and the S and P five hundred is basically my unit of analysis for the equity market work. Mm -hmm. In part because it has the best data, it goes back the furthest. It's just the, totally. the easiest to to analyze for for, and, for historical and, cycles. And for better or for worse, it's everyone's bogey. Oh, yeah, although I'd say, you know, you do still hear a lot of the Dow on TV, and that always makes me think, you know, people always quote Dow points when it's down, right? thousand points down. I know. So. Nick and I are millennials. We have no idea what the Dow is. It's still, <laughs> That's tongue-in-cheek, obviously. It's still, you know, what Trump tweets about, what, yeah. what CNBC reports, what a lot of people uh, uh, focus on. And I think the S&P is a better constructed index, yeah, at least, sure. than, than, than the Dow. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, that's the focus of, of that report. And basically, the, the question is, you know, here we are at a new all-time high. Is this a major market top or not? Mm -hmm. Does this look historically consistent with what we see when we do see major market tops? Mm -hmm. Or is it likely that this bull market is going to continue to make new all-time highs before the next bear market, which, you know, we don't have a great, in my view, a great definition of a bear market. I mean, I guess I use what most people use, which is a 20% greater peak the trough drawdown. That isn't immediately recovered. So we've seen, a, right, we've seen right. some near 20% declines, like uh, Q4 of 18, 2011, obviously, and then obviously uh, 2016, the lows of 16, but immediate recoveries, obviously. Right, and, and also those, uh, if you look at it on a daily closing basis of the S&P, they never exceeded 20%. Oh yeah, on closing basis, you're right, man. I mean, uh, the Q4 18, was 19.8% daily yeah. closing basis. Yeah. You know, but if it had been 21%, would we all be saying that was a bear market and it wasn't? I mean, it's <laughs> a little arbitrary, not. right? It's so, very arbitrary. So, you know, it's often said that the that the economy and the stock market are, are separate things, and I, I would agree with that. One of the slides, one of the first slides um, in my business cycle report shows the, as far as the history goes back on the Bloomberg data, which is to the mid-1920s, the S&P in log scale mapped against the recession bands. Mm -hmm. And you can see bear markets outside of recessions, and you can see recessions that don't have bear markets. So totally. like in, in the early 1990s, 
we had a recession but no bear market, mm -hmm. but there was a th about a 30% drawdown in 87, which yeah. was really mostly the 87 crash, yeah, totally. but, no, but no recession. Mm -hmm. So you can have one without the other and, and vice versa, but if you look historically, you can clearly see that by far the biggest bear markets and the ones that take the longest to recover are the recession, are the recession. bear markets. Absolutely. So I'm really looking for monitoring these two somewhat separate things, the economy and the market, and looking for that time when maybe the economy and the market are becoming the same thing at the same time in a negative way. Yes. With the idea of that you really, as an investor, want to avoid the big recession bear markets. Absolutely, and, one of the, and that's really interesting because one of the things I find very valuable about your work or just you know, being able to have access to seeing those reports is the fact that you, much like we, Keith and I, sort of separate church and state from the perspective, okay, what's the economy doing? And then what's the market doing? What are the, the, what are the market signals implying as it relates to that, that reflexive feedback loop? And, and clearly that reflexivity tends to sort of correlate to one when you're getting into and, 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 and into the depths of a recession. So that's very something that's, that's clearly present yeah. and top of mind to most yeah. investors now, given where the yield curve is and obviously given the direction of interest rates in the, in the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Um, you know, on, on this, this business cycle report, so, you know, kind of, you know, walk me through like, like how you ultimately determine your conclusions and, and quite frankly, who are your conclusions for? Are they for mm -hmm. you to make investment allocation decisions? Are they for your clients to, to sort of, you know, either walk them off the ledge or, you know, push them all over the ledge, uh, walk them right. away from the ledge or push them over the ledge in terms of their asset allocation decision making? Like, what, what specifically is this analysis uh, used for? Yeah, it's, it's really for long-term investors, whether it's me managing uh, private client accounts mm -hmm. or whether it's investors that are, that are managing their own accounts. I think the thing that people the biggest mistakes that people make are either being underinvested and scared to be in the market because they're always being told or they always think it's a it's a it's a major top it's a major top you know mm -hmm. um, or a recession is imminent because you do hear that a lot if you if you look around financial media mm -hmm. you you hear a lot of uh, a lot of negativity a lot of calls for bear markets a lot of calls for recessions so in in also for me it's to give me confidence to be invested when we're in an expansion bull market mm -hmm. and to not be scared out of, out, of, out of being in the market because I think a lot of times people think that you know being long let's say being long the S&P 500 as an index is so easy but behaviorally it's actually not necessarily that easy no of uh, not. number one to be to be confident enough to be fully invested or, or to be putting new cash to work when we're 11 years into a into a bull market or in, in, into an expansion mm -hmm. um, and then conversely to to not panic sell when you're down 19.8% on you know Christmas Eve of of 2018, mm -hmm. when everybody's saying that you know this is going to be another, because one thing to remember is that the last two bear markets that we've had have been big bear markets. Massive. It's been about 50% drawdowns mm -hmm. in the early 2000s. And that's on the spy. Down. I mean, you're talking 67% uh, drawdowns. Yeah. On things oh like yeah. The yeah. I'm talking about the S&P 500. Yeah. yeah. And and so, in the early 2000s, you had about 50% with the dot com bust. Which we, which we did have a little recession then, and then of course we had the great, uh, the great recession, financial crisis, about fifty five percent drawdown. So I think that it's in recent memory that hey, if we're going to have a big market downturn, twenty percent is just the beginning. It's going to be down, you know, fifty, and and who knows what the next uh, what the next recession is going to look like, what the what the next bear market is going to look like, but I think that that's what's in people's minds when you get that Q four. 2018 type of a drawdown, and so if you don't have a process, if you don't have data that you feel confident in to give you guidance, 
then I think you're really at the risk of making an emotional, uh, you know, panic sell decision. So that, that's the that's the way in which this research and analysis is applied in in in, uh, in practice. Gotcha. Yeah. No. So you're 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 really speaking to the top-down asset allocator, whether it that's be it. you making the decisions for yeah. the clients or the yeah. clients making decisions for themselves, yeah. which I think is a really important aspect of, of investment decision making. So let's go into your process. Um, so sure. what are the sort of key indicators, and everyone wants to boil it down to one thing, obviously. It's, it's right. what's the one data point that's going to make you go from a, you know, state A to state right. B, but in reality, it's a sequence of data points. It's a sequence of analyses that either affirm your convictions in, in a particular outcome, or they mitigate your conviction in a particular outcome and raise the yeah. probability of, of a different outcome. Right. Let's talk about some of the things you're currently seeing in right. the context and in the lens of that process. Yeah, so I think the, I think the process fundamentally is, is, is to decide what is the relevant data you know, I mean, I guess the first thing is to step back and, and say that there's a difference between analytical thinking and strategic thinking. Yes. Right. And so, strategic thinking is all about what am I trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit about what I was just talking about in terms of if you're an investor, you're trying to compound, uh, you know, you're trying to compound capital at an attractive rate of return over a meaningful period of time, which yeah. for most people is decades, um, with a high likelihood of actually achieving those returns. How would you go about doing that? Right? Yeah. And I think that uh, you know, being long U.S. equities historically has been one of the West best ways to to achieve uh, attractive returns, with the exception of those big those big bear markets. So mm -hmm. that's kind of from the, from the strategic sense of thinking about, okay, how do I want to go go about approaching you know long term investing? And then um, you know, uh, so you have to say, okay, what's the relevant What's the relevant data that I that I want to track, mm -hmm. and then what are the frameworks that I want to apply to that data in terms of interpreting it? So what's going to be negative and what's going to be positive? If it's the if it's something like manufacturing PMIs, you could have a dividing line that is at 50 that divides expansion from contraction, and mm -hmm. if it's above 50, it's a positive signal. If it's below 50, it's it's a negative signal. Mm -hmm. So you want to have those frameworks in mind, and then keep and have them make sense so that you can keep them consistent through. Yeah. Time. There's something about the consistency that, that really speaks to being able to, to do this over time. Right. Because obviously if you don't have a consistent framework, and, and for us the consistent framework from a from an econ econometric perspective is the quads. You know, what what yeah. is the economy doing in rate of change terms across the three biggest factors that are, are causal to, to enter an inter-asset class dispersion? It's growth, it's inflation, it's policy. And more importantly, we're trying to use rates of change and growth and inflation to sort of front run the yep. next sequence of, of, of yep. decision making by, by by policymakers. Yep, and and I know that your that your work focuses more on is certainly I'd say shorter term than than, yeah. than the than the time frame that I look at things, and mm -hmm. it's more you often focus on the on the rate of change, which is yeah. important. Um, for me, I often talk about how economic data can really be looked at in three different ways. You can look at how does the number come out. Uh, relative to expectations, yep. how does it come out relative to the prior mm -hmm. reading, and how yep. does it come out in absolute terms? So yep. to, to use the example of the manufacturing PMI, you could have a reading that comes out at uh, 52, which is down from the prior of 53, but mm -hmm. better than the 51 expected, mm -hmm. right? So you, almost any data point can be characterized positively or negatively in the headlines, depending on which one of those three ways you want to, you and want it's, to look and, at. And I say this all the time, we now live in an era because of things like Twitter, uh, just because of the, 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 the richness and the, and the amount of incremental information that's being generated on a daily basis has never been higher, and that's growing yeah. at an exponential rate. So as a function of that, the noise to signal ratio in terms of uh, that we have to sift through as investors has never been higher, yeah. and it's only getting higher. 
Yeah. And so talk to me about how you, you go about that, because that's a great example of something that there's a lot of noise in each yeah. one of these economic yeah. releases. How do you get to the, the conclusion based on all this data that you're tracking? Yeah, my, my favorite framework? thing is to run my, to run my charts, and I've you know, developed this, this chart library within Bloomberg that I can mm -hmm. just you know, do a batch run and, and run, all these, run all these charts and, yeah. see, and, and look at you know, how the data is coming out. So I think you know, to come back to that point about rate of change versus absolute level, I think those are the two most important things. I, what I have found is that at least in the, in the long term, how it comes out relative to expectations isn't that important. And maybe yes. that's because the consensus economist expectation isn't necessarily what's priced into the market anyway. Totally. Um, but I'd say that, that rate of change is getting better or worse, and where is it in, in absolute terms are probably the most two important things to look at. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of the, the the best data for the business cycle, it's really the yield curve, mm -hmm. it's manufacturing PMIs and PMIs in general. Mm -hmm. um, the LEI index from the conference board, which is a little bit of it's it's a little bit of cheating because that's already a composite indicator that they that they've put together, but you get a nice a nice history of it, and it does a pretty good job and is a good sort of uh, cross reference mm -hmm. um, to all of the the sub indicators that um, that that I look at. As, Can we as pop some of these? Do you have these charts yeah. up in your in your presentation? Yep. Yeah, let's walk through a, a, a few of these. I'm I'm definitely interested in seeing sort of your take Great. on. A lot of the data that we're tracking across, you know, our nowcast model. So, yeah. you know, it's with respect to the U.S. economy specifically, you know, we have a nowcast model that that imports features, the rates of change, and absolute levels of features across, you know, the various segments of the economies. And what we're just effectively trying to do is understand where GDP is likely to be mm -hmm. in the current quarter, mm -hmm. and then we layer on a comparative base effect model that's also yep. proprietary yep. that extrapolates that momentum in the future on an investable time horizon that we would consider to be investable, which is you know up to a year right. Um, right. in terms of the asset allocation pivots we're trying to, you know, trying to, to get investors to make. And so that, you know, that, those two models sort of coalesce to give us that, that sort of intermediate term view of what kinds of assets we should be long and, and how much right. exposure to right. something like equity beta we want to be uh, yep. exposed to and, and what types of sectors and style factors should lead and lag uh, within that. But just going back to your, your process, so you know, let's walk through a few of the indicators that you're looking at sure. to sort of get to those conclusions as well. Sure. I think maybe the most interesting one, if we can put it up on the screen, is the... Um, uh, slide is, number? Is, do we need a slide number? Yeah, probably helpful. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so the slide number, um, I think it's slide number five. Or slide number four would be the ten-year versus the three-month. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this one right here. Yeah, so the, actually, so it, I have I have two yield curves, and I think that it's important to look at both. So this is the ten-year versus the three-month, and you can see that we did have an inversion last year. Mm -hmm. We were inverted from May to to October, and that was the first time that we had yield curve inversion for this entire expansion. And we've mm -hmm. always had it prior to to recessions. Now, doesn't I mean the sample size is relatively small? We only have seven recessions here for the data going back. That's that's mm -hmm. as that's as far as we can go back to get the the uh, the interest rate uh, uh, data, mm -hmm. at least reliable interest rate data. So we did get inversion last year, and you can see just looking visually at the chart. And I think in general, like my approach is very much based on data visualizations. I think you know pictures are worth a thousand words, and you can capture a lot of information very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Looking at looking at you know what pictures what and color coding. Yeah, that's where I, that's my specialty. Exactly. And, and so you can see that we've always had inversion prior to recessions, and there haven't been many false signals. So I think we had, we had one false signal in the, in the mid-60s. And the question is, this, this inversion that we got last year, is that a genuine signal, or is that, is that going to be a false signal? Mm -hmm. And it's too, a little bit too early to tell, because typically when you get the inversion, it's about a 6 to 18-month lag until you would potentially go into recession. So yeah. even though like one of the classic uh, headlines that we got when we were headed for inversion 
early this last year, August. or no, yeah, this was back early last year and even in oh, 20, April. 2018, because yeah. when the, the curve has been flattening, this whole expansion. It peaked in 17. Right? And what you would see are these headlines saying the yield curve is as flat as it, it hasn't been this flat since 2007. Mm-hmm. But that's very deliberately misleading because, of course, in 2007, it wasn't flattening. It was, it was steepening. steepening at yeah, that point. Exactly. You know? So the proper analog would be 2005 rather Bingo. than 2007. Bingo. That's the rate of change right. analysis. Yeah. And, so, and so now the question is, okay, well, was this inversion from last year a genuine signal? If we go to the, the, the next slide, I think it's slide five, the 10-year versus the three-year, mm-hmm. that shows a different picture because we actually have not had inversion mm-hmm. on this, uh, on this uh, metric of, of the yield curve, whereas we have always had it in the past. So what I was about to say earlier is that there's no amount of historical data that means that we have to get inversion before the next recession, of mm-hmm. course. But if, if, if we're using history as a guide, then it seems to me more likely than not that we actually probably are going to see this yield curve invert prior to the next recession. But overall, the yield curve analysis is, is, is a mixed picture because we've had inversion on the 10-year versus the three-month, mm-hmm. and it's rare to get false signals there. Mm-hmm. But we haven't had it on the 10-year, three-year, where we always get it prior to, to recession. So mm-hmm. my characterization as far as the yield curve goes is neutral to negative. Yeah. Have to respect the fact that we got the inversion on the 10-year, three-month, but it's, it's a, there's a question mark around the fact that it hasn't been confirmed by the 10-year, three-year. Mm-hmm. What I suspect is, is, is happening there is that, and I think we can probably show this um, on slide, uh, slide 29. Let's see if that's it. Uh, yeah, so this shows, so this disaggregates the yield curve into yep. the two pieces, which I think is also important to, to look at because there are different kinds of flattenings and different kinds of steepenings. And the way that we had the, the way that we had this inversion is not typically what you, what you see, because normally what you see is that inflation's picking up in the business cycle. You've, you've run out of slack in the economy, both in terms of available workers and uh, installed fixed capacity. So mm-hmm. capacity utilization is very high. You get inflation building up, and the Fed, because of its mandate, has to come in and fight inflation and hike rates. And then it, and it hike rates, and, and continued rate hikes are expected and priced into the curve two years out, three years out. Mm-hmm. And that moves above the 10-year, and then you get inversion with both the 10-year and the 2-year or the 3-year moving higher. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we got inversion with both moving lower. And so I think that that's an important uh, distinction to make between totally. what's happened with this inversion and prior inversions. Absolutely. And I think that's, you, you, you know, something that's really critical. I, I think it, it, in charts in general, if you go back to uh, the 10-year, the 3-month chart, uh, slide 9 again, uh, the 10-year, 3-year, yeah, I think it's four, three, slide, four. slide 4, rather. I think this is something that's so critical, and it's particically for younger investors. I mean, you and I are in our mid-30s now. You know, we've been doing this for what I would consider to be a decent while, but not certainly not long enough to be able to recall those blue bars, you know, off the top mm-hmm. of our head. And so I think something that's really important to me is really this whole concept of sequence. You know, like the, the amount of time and space that it takes from these inversion points, from the points where the, the, the data says, I'm signaling, mm-hmm. you know, one of these blue bars pen a pending mm-hmm. basis. And you actually get the blue bar. To me, it's so yeah. important because, yeah. again, I think a lot of investors, you know, particularly investors because we live in this macro touristy headline driven world, they say yield curve reversion, recession risk. Yeah. They miss the fact that the year leading up to most equity bull market peaks is actually one of the best years of every equity bull market. Yeah. It's typically characterized by double digit returns and growth, yeah. high beta momentum, you know, ten, upwards of 20 to 30 to 50 percent for, for, you know, pick your cycle. And I think a lot of investors kind of forget that. And that's, that's kind of the key takeaway. It's, it's where are you in the cycle? Yeah. Not, just, not just saying, I'm in the stadium, I'm in the town where the stadium is in, right. but exactly what inning are you 
in this particular yeah. game that we're calling this, this this cycle, and that's something I've been doing a lot of work on as well. The, the other thing that that reminds me of is that is that when you get these headlines from going as far back as 2018, maybe even 2017, yeah. that, that the yield curve is as flat as it's been since 07, people hear that. It's like the boy who cried wolf. It's mm-hmm. like you, you've been telling me it's 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 07 on the analog for three years, for four years. Yeah. You know, wh- where's the recession? Totally. Wh- wh- you know? So I think people get tired of hearing, you know, they get, they get yield curve inversion fatigue in terms of the headlines over yeah. the years because it just keeps getting berated as a talking point and as a headline. And then if you think about it, the fact that it's been such a reliable indicator in the past, I think it almost has to be the case that it gets shrugged off when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> There's always a reason why it doesn't matter this time. Yeah, and, and that's the thing to be really careful about. Well, now there's the number of reasons why it's not going to happen this time are infinite and, and growing at an accelerating yeah. rate. That's, yeah. that's the nature of this macro tourist machine that we live in. So it's, I, I have to be wary because I think that there is a, I mean, I'm on the fence and I have to cross-reference all the other indicators as to whether I think the inversion from last year is a genuine, is a genuine recession signal. Mm-hmm. And I'm leaning towards, a, it, it, my, I'm leaning towards it, it's probably not, it's probably more of, a, more of a false signal. But I have to be wary of the fact that I don't want my brain playing tricks on me and saying that, you know, because everybody, the, the consensus has to be that it's, that it's different this time and that we're not imminently going into recession. I don't mm-hmm. think that the, the, the consensus is that you're going into recession if you look historically at the points where you actually do. Oh, no, totally. We know what the consensus is. If you pop up slide uh, 74 in the macro theme stack, Josephine, we know what consensus is. Consensus, you know, at least prior to this most recent coronavirus um, outbreak in terms of its impact on markets, very clearly, <laughs> quad two, in our vernacular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So quad two yeah. is, is, a, is a situation where growth and inflation are accelerating at the same time. And again, this is all pre uh, the, the 20, 23% collapse in crude oil. Yeah. Census came into the year long long crude oil, long small caps exposure, short the dollar and short treasuries. And what that tells us, based on the historical back test for all these particular asset classes and factor exposures, is that the consensus expects a quad to recovery. Yeah. Now, if you go back to, uh, you know, you look at something like slide 13 in this deck, Josephine, you know, where, we, where have we been in terms of the rate of change in U.S. growth? It's, we've been basically on the backside of this U.S. sign curve for, you know, really since the cycle peaked in 3Q18. So from that perspective, you know, we know what we know what the path towards recession looks like. It's not. It's not. It's not not obvious for for every investor, right? It's it, growth is slowing, and at a certain point you hit a stall speed, and at a certain point the labor market gets too tight, at a certain point the Fed right. has tightened too much, and at a certain point, you know, that's when uh, you know all the correlations start to go to one as it relates to firing, you know, the, the depressing right. impact on profits and consumer spending and and, and business confidence. All these things really start to correlate, and so it's really just about understanding that the the system has vulnerabilities but then monitoring diligently for the trigger that would cause the system to sort of quote unquote break. What do you have in your, 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 your report that would seem to be a, a more of a signal of a trigger uh, from that perspective? Well, I guess, I guess that, that leads into more of the, the analysis on the, on the market itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generally speaking, I think you know, being in a business cycle expansion is certainly a positive backdrop for, uh, for, for equities. Mm-hmm. But, but as we talked about, it's not, it's not one for one. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of the things that I really look for on the, on the uh, market side, and this is one that we've gotten uh, updates to in the past couple of days, which has been good, is that every time the, every time the S&P 500 makes a new high for the bull market, I measure the, the breadth in, in a few different ways. But, but one of the ways is what, what percentage of, of member companies are above their respective 200-day moving averages. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you look at historically what happens in bull markets is that breadth is very strong, participation is very high early in the bull market. And then as the bull market ages, that uh, 
that participation declines, the breadth declines, and then it gets to what I would describe as a critical level, and my critical level historically is about 63% participation. If you're making new all-time highs on the index, but fewer than 65% of the component stocks are above their 200-day moving averages, that's a sign that that's a, that that's a, that's a very old bull market that's, mm-hmm. that's likely to turn over. And the classic example of that was in the late 90s when, when, when breadth just got extremely, extremely low. I think it was in the yep. 50%, 40%, something like that. Mm-hmm. So then we make these new highs, and you can say, you can ask the question, does this look historically consistent with a major market top or not? Mm-hmm. And as far as the breadth analysis goes, it's actually pretty strong. What we saw is that it, it, was, it was pretty low last year as we were making new highs, and then recently when it made a new all-time high, uh, I guess when it was making new highs in January, I think it's we got as 17th. high as... Yeah. I think we got us yeah on the seventeenth yeah. of January we we got as high as eighty seven percent participation oh that's it. yeah it's which very is high. very strong and so that's we haven't seen it that strong since since twenty fourteen so that's very inconsistent with a major market top and suggests that there's potentially quite a bit of room for the for the market um, you know to continue higher which I think is surprising a lot of people because or at least I mean there's certainly a group out there that pushes back against that. Um, Talking about how far it's come from the from the Q4 2018 lows, mm-hmm. but one chart that I have in my equity market report is that if you look at the S and P, the index, we were at the same level at the peak in January of 2018 as we were at, at the low in October of 2019. So you had 21 months of sideways movement on the S and P with a lot of downside volatility, mm-hmm. and we've had periods like that in the past. In, in I think in uh, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. where you had these really poor sharp ratios on on the S and P. Yeah, you know, very poor Sertino ratios as well. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. because yeah. it's all downside volatility. Yeah, you know, and it's very flat. And then you get these surprisingly strong advances coming out of it. So I think we were, mm-hmm. you know, the S&P was up 45% coming out of that sideways consolidation in, in 11-12, and then 35%, something like that, coming out of the consolidation in 2015-16. So we could be still in the relatively early days of this advance out of that consolidation that we had in uh, uh, basically in 18-19. Yeah, no, and, and to me it's, it's, it's also, you know, you, a lot of your analysis is focused on the capital allocation decision yeah. to be long stocks versus bonds, yeah. you know, what, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of our work focuses on, you know, okay, what are you long within the Absolutely. equity market? If your goal is to outperform, yeah. you know, I say this all the time, don't be beta, yeah. beat beta. You have an yeah. opportunity as an investor, so what are you long? It's, it's you know, good jump to slide, um, you know, slide 138, uh, Josephine, in the, in, in the macro theme stack. You know, there's a lot of the work I've been doing recently is just about this whole concept of, of excess liquidity, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, everyone. Yep. It's the excess liquidity is is a nom- is what I would consider to be consensus nomenclature for the death of process. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna buy the spy and the Fed, and I don't have to. I'm gonna show up to work at 9:29 and just be long the spy, and at four o'clock I'm going home because you know excess liquidity. Yep. But again, it's not about excess liquidity, right? Like it's about what if you sure. If you want to be long the SPY and, and as a professional investor, conduct the nine basis points, go work at State Street. If you actually want to earn, earn your keep for your clients and actually deliver them a superior risk-adjusted return, it's about, from our perspective, it's about using the cycle to time these sort of big invested allocation decisions. So actually, yeah. Josephine, go back to slide 135, actually. I use this all the time. Don't be beta, beat beta. If you look at the last four years of investing, right, and so what we're showing here in this chart um, in rate of change terms is all of the, you know, the top 15 features in our outcast model for GDP, uh, the key drivers in our inflation model, and, and, and the sequence of corporate profits. And what you see, just looking at the growth component, just from a rate of change perspective, you really only had to go to work twice 
I mean, you have to go to work every day to sequence all this data, right. but you've only really had to make two material asset allocation decisions um, from the perspective of, of what are you long within the market, and, and that's you know the second half of 2016 and then heading into Q4 of 2018, jumping, over, jumping back to slide 138. You know, it's like, if, you know, and we were there for that, you know, for both periods. You know, we were, we we're persistent quiet one and two from uh, mid-November 2016 up until, you know, the end of 2000, September 2018. And lo and behold, when you look at something like cyclicals, looking at the Russell 1000 Dynamic Index, that's up 40% relative to the 20% return you saw on something like utilities. Right. But if you make that full cycle investing pivot on yeah. time, and you're long utilities since then, you're up 40%, whereas cyclicals only up 11%. Yeah. And so it's like... I don't just want to be beta. I mean, it's a very important asset allocation decision right. you need to make right. as an investor, you know, certainly in the context of heading in potential recession, you know, over the next yeah. 12 to 16, yeah. 18 month time horizon. But it's also, I want to make the most amount of money along the entire ride. Right. And that's something that, you know, I think that's a really important, um, uh, important sort of distinction between maybe our processes, but not yeah. necessarily our conclusions. Right. I, I think that if you're, if you're, um, if at this point you're 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 long the the index and, and expecting that you're going to make a 15% total return on average uh, for infinitely you're you're going to be in for, uh, yeah. for, for 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 a surprise because yeah. eventually I mean this, this has been a tremendous bull market but I, I think and it depends on it depends on who you're who you're working for if you if you're working for a fund I think you have a di- different set of constraints and expectations than if you're working for a family office totally. or a private client Absolutely. and that's the difference and, you know because you know to my way of thinking you know Beta's fine if the beta returns are good. I mean, if we're talking about the total return on the S&P 500, I just looked at the data this morning. Um, you know, for the past 11 calendar years, 2009 through the calendar year of 2019, you know, the average has been about 15% total return, with the biggest down year being in 2018. Go to 133. I mean, this chart 4%. is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> so I think if you were, I think if you were a hedge fund manager producing that, producing those returns. Uncorrelated to the market, you'd be you'd be in world class territory. Yeah, the right. problem is if you're one to one correlation with the market, you're probably not earning two and twenty. Right. right. Uh, of course. Yeah. Of course. And that's that's the, the that's one of the key takeaways there. And I, and and jumping to slide one thirteen, I mean, I you know look at the changing of the market structure, right? Like, you know, twenty years ago, or sorry, no, sorry, no, one thirty rather. Twenty years ago, eighty nine percent of the AUM and looking at U.S. equities in particular was an active managed fund. Mm-hmm. Now it's only 50%. So the world is moving your way in terms of having to make those decisions at, yeah. you know, at, the, at, the, yeah. at the asset yeah. class level. How yeah. much beta yeah. exposure do I want to be? But for the people who are left in that 50% bucket, increasingly duking it out over what seems to be yeah. lower management fees, you know, yeah. lower performance fees. You know, we, we live in an era of fee deflation. That's something yeah. we just have to acknowledge as, as active managers and yeah. people who service active managers. Yeah. And so it's really about, okay, can I give you the tools that you need to, 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 to you know, stay fully invested at the client level? Right. And then can I give you the tools that you need to succeed and deliver superior risk-adjusted returns at the active manager level? And, and, I, and I think both can be done. Yeah. Quite frankly, you know, that we wouldn't have an industry if both couldn't be done. And you, know, you, you look at a lot of different, um, a lot of different business cycle indicators and, and market indicators to get that to that, to that beta answer. And I think you know, one of the ways in which we do that is kind of similar. Um, if you just those slide uh, 143 on uh, 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 by the way just quickly it's, I mean the answer the conclusion isn't always going to be to stay long you, you know I think no I mean, that's of course the whole, yeah. that's the whole of point of doing yeah. the homework that's right? the whole point of doing yeah. homework the conclusion has been to stay yeah. long yeah. and it's been the appropriate conclusion yeah. Yeah. Um, and and our conclusions have been from the back half of 16 to the the, 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 the end of Q3 of 18 it was to be offensively positioned right you know be long stocks be long cyclicals be long high beta be long momentum and since then 
you've had demonstrably superior risk-adjusted returns and absolute returns being defensively positioned. Bonds are yeah. outperforming stocks by that's, 10, that's 1,000 right. basis points since yeah. then. You know, you got low beta stocks outperforming high yeah. beta stocks by 2,000 2, basis points since then. You know, that's kind of the, the, the whole point. It's like, I want to constantly put myself in a position to make the most amount of money with the least amount of risk. Yep. And that's sort of our, that's kind of where we differ in terms of the, the shorter cycle nature of our process. Yeah. But I don't think the longer term conclusions are any different, right? Right. Where are we in the business cycle? What does that mean for your asset allocation decision making process? Yeah. And I and then going back to slide 143, you know, we, we I think about the world very similar to you. Where where are you in this cycle and how much time and space do you need to be able to pick up and you know, I don't want to say nickels in front of a steamroller because a, a recession is a steamroller, but that 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 whole that 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 phrase sort of implies that the steamroller is very close. If yeah. this is 2005 and the recession is going to hit in the end right. of 2007, right. You're not going to have a job as an active manager by 2007. You know, like that's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, yeah. well, that's one of the that's one of the yeah. constraints. Although in, in that example, I mean, it, it depends on how on how much further there is to go. I mean, you mm -hmm. could have. I mean, there are many people who have been bearish since 2013. Yeah, that, that, that I'm aware of. I, right? I know a guy uh, running a, a, a <laughs> an anonymous blog <laughs> that's been bearish the entire time since I've been in finance. Right, yeah. and and so you know, if you say. You know, because some people say, "Well, but we've gone so far, so why not?" You know, be defensive. But then mm -hmm. you have to think. You have to run through the actual exercise and maybe you know run it on a spreadsheet of, you know, if I get defensive. I mean, let's say you you get defensive today, but the market goes up another thirty percent over fifteen percent over the next two years, fifteen percent uh, you know each year for roughly a thirty percent gain from here. And the next bear market isn't going to be like the last two, where it's a fifty percent bear market. It's going to be a more average. 30% bear market. You'd have to be an expert market timer to get back in where you got out. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very careful, I think, about, about how defensive you want to be and, 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 and how early. You know, a lot of people, 2015, got defensive, and then we did have that, that yeah. down market in the second half of 15, early 16. Mm -hmm. But you know, where were we on the, uh, on the index back then? You know, 21, 22, 2300? I mean, we're, we're 1,000 points higher on the S&P. From from there, totally. so we, we got a long way to go to get to get down there. We may never we may never get back down there. So if you were taking taking risk off the table along the way, you know it's unclear that you're that you're actually going to be able to deploy that capital that's been in cash back in the market at more attractive levels. Yeah, no, totally. That's actually a mistake I made uh, my first year that I actually had enough money saved up to start investing was 2011, um, and you know I remember we made this negative market call in 2011, and, and uh, Kevin Kaiser used to run our energy desk here. He and I were like, yeah, if the market gets back to 1,000 on the S&P, we're going to go all in on, on stocks. Right, right. It didn't get to 1,000. Right. I didn't buy a single stock right. until 2013. And, and then you've got a cash <laughs> drag, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's, and that's, that's the part about strategic thinking that you've got to mm -hmm. think about weighing the, the, basically the, the cost of, of acting versus, versus not acting and what, you know, I, I think the downside is underperforming what, what you could do. On the flip side, yeah, you've you got to accept the, the potentially greater volatility or that you might not get the recession call or the bear market call. Yeah. Perfectly right. And for us, it's all about, again, like I said, it's, it's about what are the quads? Like what, if you're in quads one or two, you want to be offensively positioned. In quads three or four, you want to be defensively positioned. And at some point, you're going to take your ball and go home. And that's kind of the, the point of your, you know, in your analysis and some of the analysis I've been working on lately is when do you take the ball and go home? When is it no longer cool to be long? <laughs> Consumer staples, you know, like or, or, or utilities, because you know those things get dinged in recessions too. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's open up to some Q Q and A. Just a reminder, uh, you guys, there's uh, you know the most popular questions. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get addressed. So, uh, starting with Michael, with 11 upvotes, it says uh, this market has a this mar current market cycle has a strong ability to shake off any shock and headwind 
simply by utilizing tools and policies that have historically proven ineffective over the course of the full cycle. I think he means ineffective of stimulating growth. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile your quad allocation back test when the market environments are so different? So I mean, that's, that's a, probably a question for me. I don't yeah. know if you have any thoughts on that before I happen. Well, I, I guess I would say that, um, that in terms of policy tools, if you're really going into a recession, the Fed rate cuts aren't going to prevent that. No, totally, never have. So, so, and th and that was the thing when when the, when the Fed started cutting last year was, is this going to be like the beginning of cutting in in you know 2000 or the beginning of cutting in 2000? Yeah, in, it's you know, 95, 96, you know, you know, it's 98. Right, because yeah. we've also had we've also had the the mid cycle cuts, yeah. which which we had in 98, 95, mm -hmm. even even uh, I think back in the in the late 80s. So mm -hmm. Greenspan has done a few of these mid cycle cycle yeah. uh, you know adjustments that have actually engineered. Um, I guess you could say soft landings. One of the things I think is funny is that Greenspan, you know, is the maestro for hiking rates preemptively in the mid-90s and then easing again, whereas there's just absolutely no love for, for Powell these days, and it's too early to tell whether this is really a soft landing. But I would say that if we're really going into recession, yeah, the Fed rate cuts aren't going aren't gonna to do much. Um, because the Fed can cut rates, but it can't cut labor. The, pr the number one reason, at least from what we can tell from a backtesting perspective and looking at all the economic data, that we go into recession is you have a market event that is sort of very perilously timed in and around when unit labor costs are destroying corporate profitability. Yeah. And you, you, you catalyze a sequence of firings that catalyzes you know, the depressed consumer confidence, depressed consumer spending, and it all becomes very reflexive. And that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's how you get the recession. And the Fed can't do anything about right. that unit labor cost inflation dynamic. Yeah. But yeah. I think there was another aspect of that question that's probably more uh, specifically addressed to your. Yeah, no, actually, I, so I was, you know, uh, prior to your, you know, you getting here, I was actually you know, hard at working on, on some slides, adding, you know, every time we get these types of questions, you know, I happen to throw, you know, and Keith and I are on the road all the time, you know, visiting clients. And what I'll do is, you know, if, if we get a tough question, or I think is a really relevant question to the discussions that we're having, you know, I'll pop them into the appendix. So, you know, today I popped some slides in the appendix for you guys, so hopefully you guys enjoy these. Uh, just starting with, you know, so specific on this question that, like, Fed liquidity equals I can wake up at 930 and do no more work. Um, so go to slide 131, and we'll fly through these uh, slides really quickly because I do want to make sure we have uh, plenty of time uh, to get the questions. So everyone says Fed liquidity is accelerating. It's everything's good. But most people don't realize that money, money supply growth is actually inversely correlated to GDP, both on an absolute and first difference basis. If you look at slide 132, which is the, and that's hard on 132. Which metric do you use for uh, money supply? Uh, just M2. I'm just M2. any any yeah, yeah. any metric of money slide. But the, certainly the broader you go, the more the more tight the correlation will get um, as it relates to something like GDP. And so I go, okay, well, sure. Most people don't know that. But what most people do know is on 133. Beta's done very well for 10 years, so everyone wants to be beta. You know, they don't necessarily want to beat beta, they want to be beta. But then I remind everyone, it's like 134, if you wanted to be beta in Europe and Japan because of liquidity and money supply, right. Right. you've done absolutely nothing. I mean, right here, I'm indexing on the left chart, the Eurostock 600 index to its uh, 1H2000 peak. It's only yeah. up 6% from there with a sharp ratio of 0 0.4. I know. I know. You, you the PK is down 37% yeah. from from where it was today, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's there right. are millennials who are making investment decision makings on the buy side yeah. that they have, they, they, we weren't alive the last time the millennial was above its uh, the Nikkei was above its high watermark. Yeah, think yeah, about it's that. It's pretty remarkable. That that is what excess liquidity gets you, folks. If you want to chase a 10-year bull market in stocks, thinking that this is this is the new wave of the future. And so it's really, again, yeah, the, I, I can't stress under, it about, enough. It's about I mean, the cycle. The underperformance of, of international has been really, I think, one of the noteworthy features of this 10-year, this 11-year mm -hmm. bull, bull market. I think one of the things that, that occurred to me recently or that I realized recently is that if you look at the MSCI weightings for the U.S. versus Europe, mm -hmm. 
I think it's 23, 24% tech in the U.S. and 6% tech in Europe. Mm-hmm. I think that's one. I think that's probably been one of the one of the issues that's uh, that's allowed those or well, contributed to those markets lagging. Well, it hasn't always been the way. I mean, you think of something like software. Software has gone from like 14% of that index to like 22, 23, 24, probably 25 yeah. now, yeah. actually, with the size yeah. of Microsoft. Yeah. And that's as a, one of the functions. Obviously, they have had great returns, but you've yeah. seen a pretty sharp decline in the share. Of, you know things like energy and basic materials as yeah. the dollar has risen yeah. off you know for nine years off of its 40-year low in 2011. The the other thing, I'm interested to get your take on it is these S&P 500 companies have about 55% of their revenue from overseas. So these are and I think we've you know we're an increasingly global world. So I think it's more the case these days that you've got a potential. You you really get punished for not owning the winners. I think. Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely get punished for not owning winners, but we we more importantly we think you. You get punished for owning the losers at the worst, the most inopportune time. Yeah, there's a time to buy the losers, and there's a time to sell the winners. Oh, absolutely. It's about using absolutely. the cycle absolutely. to time those decisions to help you yeah. time those decision-making processes. You're not going to get everything right, no, yeah. unless you're Bernie Madoff. You're not going to nail every timing decision you make. But in, the, the whole point of being an active manager is to identify those winners and losers yeah. and take advantage. Use the cycle, use the fundamental data to take advantage of those things. Um, but yeah, on your, to your point on the international uh, slide 69 in the macro theme stack shows our GIP model backtest um, for the U.S. dollar index, uh, specifically looking at global growth and inflation yeah. um, signals. And what you find is that the dollar only goes up in quad four, i.e. when you know the international economy is slowing into quad mm-hmm. four, nominal GDP mm-hmm. slowing internationally. And it pretty much goes down straight down like a ball of fire in quad one and two, um, and it goes mm-hmm. down less so in quad three. So that, what that tells me is that when the international economy is doing good, the dollar goes down, and it's a doubly reflexive positive impact to, 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 to the winner's corporate earnings. And yeah. so much so, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a doubly negative reflexive impact on the other way around. So that's, a, that's something to keep in mind there. All right, next question here. Uh, Pierre asks, can the melt-up continue to hide cracks in the foundation? Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, it's, hard, it's hard to know what the, what the underlying assumptions are there. And, and I might question some of the underlying assumptions yeah, of that, I do too. Of, of that I, question. I, I, def, I definitely do, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you can go first, but my, my biggest assumption is that, you know, that, one, we're melting up. We may or may not be melting up. That's, you know, neither here nor there. I wouldn't right. characterize market moves with, you know, sort of loose nomenclature like melt up or melt right. down. It's really right. just what is happening, right. both at the at level in terms of percentage change at the index level, but also what's happening underneath it from a price volume volatility perspective. Are we melting up with the rising volume or falling volume? Are we melting up on accelerating volatility or, or dis, uh, you know, sort of decelerating volatility? Those, yeah. All of those things matter. And currently, that's been the case positive. All those signals have coalesced into a positive signal yeah. for something like the SPY, but it's not, not the case for something like the Russell. Yeah, I guess if you... I think it's important to put things in perspective, and, and one of the things that, that it, especially when you're dealing with long-term charts, it's so important to have a log scale. Oh my God! I, I mean, can't. the distortions that happen, and, and this is happening right now with the, with the virus cases. Totally. I mean, you have to put that in, in a log scale. You have to put it in a log scale. Um, so if you look at the bull market in the S&P 500 from the beginning in the middle of '09 till now, there's a very clean um, trend channel on the log scale, mm-hmm. and we're right in the middle of it. Yeah. So. To me, you know, in the top end of that range right now is about 4,000 on the S&P. So if we had a blow off top, a melt top, to me, to me that we'd have to exceed that upper, mm-hmm. that upper channel. Yeah, and then, by the way, that's the history of pre-recession periods. You know, yeah. you, you typically, you know, I kind of mentioned this a few times, but go back to slide uh, one, 143. 
you know, we're, we're diligently tracking and sequencing all the stuff that'll tell you, A, if a blow off top is coming, and B, when that blow off top might end. So let's just, let's just, let's, let's start with the premise that not every bull, bull market, equity bull market ends in a blow off top. Let's just start with that premise. Um, at least lately yeah. over the past three cycles, looking at this identity you know, sort of uh, anchoring on the past three cycles, you typically have seen, you know, sort of mid-teens returns on something like the SPY, and those returns have historically been led to the upside by the growth, momentum, and high beta style factors. That's been yeah. consistent yeah. across each of these three cycles. So, you know, if you're going to say that's going to happen again, that's fine. But this concept of, you know, lazy blow-off top or, or excess liquidity, you know, that to me, it's, that, that's a very lazy discussion. But what is not a lazy discussion, putting that table back up on the chart, is sequencing the time and the space that you need, to, that you sort of, you've historically seen in advance of these things called blow-off tops or what people would otherwise characterize as a blow-off top. So, you know, we're looking at, it, you know, these things from a you know, variety of factors as well. Market breadth, you know, when does the S&P right. 500 equal weight index peak relative to the index right, itself, right. the Russell 2000. Yep. We're looking at liquidity dynamics, you know, what, what's happening with the yield curve, what's happening with 10-year treasuries, you know, how much has the Fed gotten the dollar down, how much right. has the Fed reflated gold and oil, you know, how much is that is having a, you know, where's corporate profits, how much deterioration have we seen in corporate profits, in consumer confidence, in business confidence, and then lastly, the, what I think is the, probably the most critical indicators, because these are the ones that really start to signal red in advance of the ultimate equity bull market peak is what's happening in the labor market. So the labor market very clearly is late cycle um, from the perspective of pretty much any metric you can track. You know, the, certainly consumer, continuing unemployment claims probably being one of the most mm -hmm. relevant metrics you can track from that perspective. And obviously the level of jobless claims of the, the spread between the U6 and the U3 rate, yep. these are three things that all say yep. we are late cycle. Yep. But in terms of where we are in the current cycle, looking at this table again, you know, the, 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 the trough in things like consumer or initial jobless claims, consumer or continuing claims, you know, the, the amount of time that has passed from those troughs pales in comparison to the amount of time that has passed or that has passed historically between those troughs and the eventual bull market. Mm. Same with the amount of deterioration. You know, you haven't seen nearly the amount of deterioration in, in, in unemployment claims, both on an initial and continuing basis. You haven't seen nearly the amount of deterioration you've seen historically um, in terms of like the unemployment rate or the, the, the rate of change in employment growth. And that's not to say these things aren't going to happen because they will happen. The whole point about waking up, at, you know, I wake up every day at 5 every day, Jason Keith who wakes up every day at 4.30, it's waking up every day to see when those things go from green yep. to less green to orange yep. to red. And oh, by the way, while we're doing that, we know what quad we're in, so we can know exactly what kind of exposures we want to be exposed to on the long and short side across these different asset classes while we're doing the sequencing process. It's also important to have a, a number of different indicators. Totally. If, you, if, if you say that initial claims are important, mm -hmm. uh, or, or that one of the favorites these days has been the continuing claims, yeah. if you say that's important and then it's meaningful that on a year-over-year -year basis its, mm -hmm. its rate of change is positive, mm -hmm. then you, you can't ignore it when the rate of change goes negative again. You know, there has to be intellectual consistency. That's exactly what happened. So we got, um, that actually recently happened in, in the December, in December jobless claims data was uh, severely impacted by the calendar shift in terms of uh, pushing uh, the, the, late, no, the late Thanksgiving holiday materially right. impacted the year-over-year rate, year rate of change in initial jobless claims in December. So we had a false breakout in initial jobless claims in December, right, but right, in January, right. on a monthly average basis, slowed back to down 4.9% year over year. That's the, right. that's the sharpest contraction in initial jobless claims we've seen since January of 2019. Right. So what that's telling me is that, not yet, 
There's the right. recession call, right. not yet, at least from the perspective of this single indicator. Right. And again, it's about creating a mosaic. And, of yeah, and you're cross-referencing a lot of different indicators. And, and if you're saying it's important at, at one point in time, then then it has to be important to, to, to review and cross-reference month to month to month. But so many people, I think, um, essentially engage in confirmation bias. And you can, I mean, I could create, you could create a, a set of all negative charts and mm -hmm. it would paint a very negative picture or all positive charts and it would paint a very positive picture. Mm -hmm. It's important to be looking at all of the relevant data. Consistency. Yeah. Consistency of indicator and consistency of, of how you score the indicator. Right. You know, in terms of that chart. And I'm sure you have a very similar process as well. It's okay, so, where are you within the range of this indicator relative to previous cycles? Where are you at the level of this indicator relative to previous cycles? Yeah. And oh, by the way, yeah. how much time has elapsed from when you peaked relative to previous cycles? Right, because I mean, you have long leading cycles. indicators, you, you have ones that are more, you know, kind of, you know, right up coincident indicators. It's, yeah, exactly. It's about that process of consistency rather than that process of, of, of narrative building and, yeah, and sort of right. a confirmation bias. All right, let's get a few more before we wrap up. Um, uh, Rocky's asking, uh, this cycle, we've seen central bankers become the market. I disagree with that. Uh, which, uh, also, which market are you referring to? By manipulating liquidity, buying risk assets, and supporting zombie companies. How reliable will our indicators of the past be in an era where central banks can move the entire market and punt the cycle further? Well, I think Again, go ahead. When, it comes to, when it comes to central banks, I think it's just important that, that they're part of your analysis and, yeah. that, and that the expansion of balance sheets is, is part of your analysis. I mean, to me... I, I would say that I ha that I have a combination of, of fundamental and technical indicators or uh, analysis that I do when I'm looking at the market. But within fundamental, I would say that what central banks are doing is part of that. The macro backdrop is part of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, within the technical side, you know, breadth and sentiment and positioning are all you know part of it. So I like to look at the market through as many different lenses as possible. But I mean, fundamentals to some extent can't be reduced to anything. Uh, beyond supply and demand, and, and if you're talking about uh, central bank balance sheets, you're talking about really money and liquidity in this system of financial assets. So to me, it's almost a quintessentially fundamental uh, piece of the puzzle to be, totally. to be looking at. I completely agree. We've been, we've are complete agreement there. What does the P stand for in our GIP model? It's policy. We're trying to use the rates of change and ultimately the levels of, of, of growth and inflation, but we use the rates of change to forecast the subsequent levels to impart our views on what the central bankers are going to do from a policy perspective. Um, you know, just rifling through these charts again, go to slide 138, or actually, no, sorry, not 138, 137. Again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not about liquidity and being lazy about central bank liquidity and saying central bankers are the market. It's about understanding what central bankers are going to do next. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is to front run their analysis of the key indicators that they're tracking. Right. And so you need right. to have a process to front run what they are going to see eventually see on their screens yep. and what's going to eventually change their behavior. And so I mentioned that, you know, from mid-November of 2016 through late September of 2018, we were consistently forecasting quads one and two in the U.S. economy. What do quads one and two, particularly quad two, which is seven of those eight quarters, was quad two? What does quad two mean? Growth's growing up at the same time, inflation's going up at the same time. We expect the Fed to get incrementally hawkish at every yeah. interval throughout. And that's yeah. exactly why you'd be long at the asset class level, stocks versus bonds. Putting the chart back up, you know, stocks from that, that, that moment in time returned 40%, that's the chart on the left, whereas bonds only returned 1%, looking at the 25-year uh, total return right. index. Right. Since then, since then, 
we've been persistently forecasting quads three and four. What do quads three and four lead a central banker to do in terms of looking at economic data? They make them ease at the margins. You know, when we said go buy bonds when bond yields were allegedly going to 4% in October of 2018, we knew the central mm -hmm. bankers were still tightening on a lag to the, the two years of quads one and two. Right. But we knew eventually if we're right on these forecasts, they're going to have to pivot. And so if you're long bonds putting the chart back up, since then, since the end of, of, of September 2018, you're up 30% on a 25-year on treasury bond. That's way better than the 18% the, 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 the return in the S&P 500. Yeah. And yeah. so again, yeah. it's not about just saying excess liquidity equals SPY. It's about front-running the quote-unquote excess liquidity and being positioned in the right asset classes, the right factor exposures, the right sectors to take advantage of quote-unquote excess liquidity. Yeah, I think it's extremely important to understand, as you say, the, the way that the Fed thinks and how, what their policy response is. I mean, they have, they have a mandate, right? And, and so Powell is given an assignment, and he says, yes, I can, I can perform this, this uh, civil service. So, you know, what are they looking at? You know, they're looking, he tells you, and he does a pretty good job of actually telling you what they look at, I'd say more, more so than, than mm -hmm. Yellen or, or central bankers in the past. Yellen almost probably told us too much. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we look at every Fed, every Fed meeting, we publish a report on the Fed and what they look at and what, and what their, their comments have been. My, my guess, I mean, historically what you see in business cycles is that as you run out of slack in terms of labor market capacity, in terms of, you know, fixed uh, capacity, that inflationary pressure builds and then the Fed has to come in to, to tighten, to fulfill their mandate. Totally. And, and that really, that combination of inflation probably being higher than what's expected and what's, what's in household and, and corporate budgets. Which is really a, a, which is really sort of a real break on those on those businesses and households, plus tightening of financial conditions, I think really helps to to roll that roll the cycle over. My guess is that this time, we're probably not going to really see the end of the cycle if it's anything like history until we get a, a meaningful buildup in inflationary pressure. Yeah, no, that's to totally, and and we've seen that at the unit labor cost side, but it hasn't been pervasive enough to perpetuate a, a more material deceleration yeah. in, in corporate earnings growth. And so that's one of the things we're tracking as well in that, in that table and in our analysis. You know, again, it's about looking at the same, the, the process component is about looking at the same set of indicators that have historically, you know, back-tested very well for identifying where you are in the cycle, both on a short-term basis, i.e. what quad you're in, but also on a longer-term basis, i.e. are we heading to recession or are we heading out of recession or, you know, is it what ending we're in? And being able to look at those things across the consistent set, uh, consistency you know, in terms of how you score it, that is how you ultimately identify, you know, what asset classes you need to be in and how yeah. much exposure you want to have. All right, let's get, um, let's get a couple more before we wrap up, uh, kind of shifting gears again, because I think we've, you know, hopefully we've beaten this sort of concept of excess liquidity. I, I yeah. kinda, everyone says excess liquidity. I just say excess laziness. That's all it is, is you're using the Fed to sort of, you know, to put you in an exposure that, yeah, it might do well, but it might not be the right exposure at the right time, or at the bare minimum, you might get completely, you, you might be passing up a better risk-adjusted uh, risk, uh, risk opportunity to make a lot more money somewhere else yeah. because you didn't show up to work that day. And so that's kind of the whole point, tongue-in-cheek, excess liquidity equals excess laziness. But I, th I think we beat that, that horse to, to, to death. So let's move on. A uh, couple other questions. I don't, how, do you, how does your process deal with something like coronavirus? I think that's a, that's a really good, good point because you're obviously a long-term right. investor. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that, that it's one of the, I mean, it, I think it's one of the, the criticisms of, um, fair criticisms of, of my process is always that, well, the data that you're looking at doesn't in, in include the thing that happened this morning that, mm -hmm. that's in the news and the impact of that. And that's true. I mean, you, you, you can never say that, um, that anything that happens on a given day that isn't in the, in the charts that I'm looking at 
um, is going to be a complete game changer. But historically, the way I see it is that historically these events, these negative events, really don't cause uh, the end of the business cycle or cause recessions. They mm -hmm. tend to exacerbate them if you're already in one. I mean, 9-11 yeah. is a good example of Perfect that. If example. you look at the data, the economy was clearly already rolling over Lehman at that, was another at that example. point. Yeah, yeah. And, and so these are things that, that, that exacerbate declines and they're, and, they're, and, and they're good, they make good narratives. They make good kind of, you know, simplistic cause and effect narratives that, that, that pe people tend to gravitate towards. But historically, if you look at SARS or the Ebola outbreak, I mean, how many people remember the Ebola outbreak? You know, that wasn't even that, that long ago. Yeah, 14. Yeah, October 14. Um, how many people remember the, the, the beginning of World War III from a month and a half ago? Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no um, one does. Yeah. You know, so these things have have a way of um, of, of kind of uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the, the the impact of these things. Obviously, they're they're um, they're they're very significant to real people in the real world. But from the standpoint of of looking at it as an investor, or portfolio manager, looking at the impact on the economy, generally, I think these things are are relatively limited. But you know, I went to a lunch with a chief economist of a bank the other day, and to him, it's a very big deal because he's. You know, and, and maybe to you as well, because he's you know granularly forecasting Q1 GDP growth for Australia. So mm -hmm. that's a big impact. Mm -hmm. You know, to my way of thinking, which is bigger picture, the question is really: Is this something that's going to end the business cycle? Yeah. And I think it's I think it's unlikely. So, you know, SARS, Ebola, Fukushima, I think is a good analog here because that yeah. was a supply shock to a huge economy. Yeah, exactly. 2011 in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, those things don't don't really they're not the dominant driving force behind business cycles in, in my view. Yeah, no, I, I I would tend to agree with that as well. And and for us, it's more about uh, if you throw slide six on before we wrap up, uh, throw slide six in the macro themes act showing our growth inflation policy model for the U.S. economy. For me, it's not about because again, I, we we would definitely tend to agree with you. The business cycles aren't aren't recessions aren't catalyzed by shocks. Everyone wants to say that there's a black swan. There's black right. swans. There's black swans. No, they're white swans. It's a regular old swan. It's called the business cycle. You, yeah. Unit labor costs inflation, and, and, and running an, at an output gap that's well in excess of your growth potential, and oh, by the way, the Fed tightening into that is what catalyzes the recession. And so all these sort of black swan events, coronavirus, et cetera, yes, they have an impact, but they don't want to necessarily catalyze a recession. To right. me, it's about, when I think about things like coronavirus impact, it's about going putting that chart back up on the, on the screen. How far do these dots drop into the quad. So right now, I think we can all agree that the directional impact of coronavirus is negative, which means those, yeah. those forecasts for, for 2Q and maybe even 3Q and potentially even 4Q, now who knows how long this thing lasts, the, the, the risk is to the downside, i.e. growth will slow faster than what's implied by those, by those uh, forecasts. And it's really just trying to wake up every day, sequence the data, sequence the incoming market signals to say, okay, what's the probability of that dot, looking at that 2Q dot, which is you know, narrowly in quad four, What's the probability of that going to the one that's bottom, at the bottom left of that corner, Q4 of 18? We all know exactly what that, you know, what that what, what that meant for financial markets. Are we going to go test that out? Are we going to sniff that out? And, and what's the probability of that rising or falling on a daily basis? And that's kind of all we can do as investors as it relates to these more, these more sort of non-modelable right. exogenous shocks. Yeah. Cool. All right, Nick, that was, uh, that was awesome, man. I love talking process. You know, I, Likewise. I think, yeah, I think it's really important to, you know, what we're going to be doing with these segments is just really going, digging into process, digging into how investors do it, uh, what's the repeatable nature, what's the robustness about their data that they're tracking, and ultimately, how do they derive their investment conclusions? And I think from that, you just naturally just, the investment conclusions fall out yeah. of that. And so uh, we'll catch you back here next time. Thank you guys for joining us this afternoon. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.